RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by Gameprint.net. We thank them and our patrons for their support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 401 of Priority One, our Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report from the Star Trek multiverse. Recorded live on Tuesday, February 19th, 2019, and available for download or streaming on Friday, February 22nd at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Anthony. All right, Kenna, we still have quite a bit to cover from our trip to Cryptic Studios. Why don't you tell us what we've got coming up this week? Well, this episode is filled with another set of interviews from our trip to Cryptic Studios. We're talking to artists, animators, and system designers. But before we jump into that, we're trekking out news that Nickelodeon is getting a Star Trek animated series for kids. CBS shares some numbers about all access, and thanks to you, we hit our fundraising goals. Later and on screen, we cross the mycelial network in Season 2, Episode 5 of Star Trek Discovery, Saints of Imperfection. Captains, remember that those hailing frequencies are always open, and we love to hear from you between episodes, so please reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Priority One Pod. You can even send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Each week, we do need to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Because of their contributions, we can continue to keep the lights on and producing the quality content that you've come to expect from Priority One each and every week. Now, of course, we understand that a financial contribution may not be in the cards, but there are other ways that you can help support Priority One Podcast. For instance, every time you see us post something on social media, especially our episodes on Fridays, be sure to hit the share button. Let your fellow Trekkies and friends know that they can get their weekly roundup of Star Trek news right here on Priority One. Now, if you're wondering what you get for donating to Priority One, well, at $10 or more, patrons get early access to most, if not all, of our interviews from Cryptic Studios, days before they go live to the public. But we also have other content to share to all of our patrons, including the newly remastered cutscenes in Star Trek Online. Those we've shared to everyone. Now, let's trek out all the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. Jim, what places? I don't know. Then let's trek it out. It looks like a Star Trek animated series may be heading to children's TV. Several trade publications, including Deadline, The Hollywood Reporter, and Variety, have reported that CBS TV Studios is currently in negotiations with Nickelodeon, and writers Kevin and Dan Hageman of Lego Movie fame to produce a Star Trek animated show. Details are currently under wraps, but it is expected to be a kid-focused show. Check out the show notes for a link to those trade articles. 
Yay! Yay! Uh, this is this probably is, in my opinion, the best news we could have gotten about any of the Star Trek uh, spinoffs, because one of the best things that Star Wars ever did was have the Clone Wars and and focus it on kids and creating a new generation of Star Wars fans. And I think that we're finally going to get that uh, after what 40 years from 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 the animated series and i mean if anybody's watched the animated series you know that that's not even great children's tv to begin with so i think this is going to be what ensures the uh longevity of star trek for years to come yeah, no, I, I could not agree with you more. I think this is really great news for the Star Trek franchise from a business perspective. And, you know, I always like to look at things from kind of like a commercial slash business perspective. You're absolutely right. Star Trek has traditionally sort of failed to capture a very young audience outside of the obvious influence where, where parents are watching with their children. But I'm talking about like children uh, independently of their parents. And uh, the fact that they're going to try and they're bringing on some writers that have very good credentials it's nickelodeon i don't even know i can't even what what can i say it's nickelodeon if they can if they can get a show onto nickelodeon in a decent time slot you're right you're introducing a whole new generation of people who will grow up watching star trek and want to ingest more as they get older i really hope it's in the style of the um you guys remember the animation that we saw a fan generate for like TNG it's like that that Kim Possible type of animation I kind of hope it's that style that'd be cool I'm, I'm struggling to understand what story they're going to tell but I guess we'll find out soon enough at CBS All Access business is booming if you'll recall CBS had set a goal of 8 million subscribers for Showtime and at the time the newly launched CBS All Access service and their goal was to have those subscribers by 2020 well, the company hit that mark two years early. Business Insider lists three major contributing factors that they believe have led to the company's streaming success. Timing, brand strength, and original content. The article notes that the Twin Peaks and Star Trek revivals have driven palpable growth for Showtime and CBS, respectively. Called it. This was one of the chief complaints that I had, actually, about um, CBS All Access. Like, way before, like, Star Trek Discovery even started, I was looking at sort of average viewing figures for, like, a big, you know, uh, uh, flagship blockbuster-type show like The Walking Dead and projecting that out based on, you know, what they thought, uh, what is it, 8 million subscriptions. They were way, way, way undershooting what they were looking for in terms of viewers for Star Trek. I am glad to see that rather than just sort of letting it deflate and die, uh, they seem to have just been happy to just hit that mark like way early. I'm pleased. And last but certainly not least, the best news of the week is that we hit our goal for our Extra Life campaign. Thanks to the support of our friends and listeners, we raised over one thousand seven hundred and one dollars. Get it, seventeen oh one. We did this for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia during our twelve-hour live stream marathon on Saturday, February sixteenth. Now, if you weren't around to donate during our live stream and participate and, and chat with us, that's okay. The nice thing about Extra Life is that donations can be made throughout the entire year. So even though we can't incentivize you with any more giveaways from our friends 
uh, at Roddenberry and Star Trek Online and GamePrint, you can still support the cause to help save a child's life. So head on over to our Extra Life donation page and please consider contributing. Links to that, of course, will be in our show notes. Well, Captains, it's time to revisit Cryptic Studios with another set of interviews with several of the developers behind Star Trek Online. Security clearance level 3 or above is required to access files. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko. Authorization Sisko Alpha 1 Alpha. Logs accessed. Those of you who follow me on social media might be aware that I did some retail therapy over the holidays and had my ship, the USS Logos, from Star Trek Online, printed by GamePrint.net. If you haven't heard of that name before, GamePrint is the company that teamed up with Star Trek Online so that players can upload their personalized ship design from Star Trek Online and have it 3D printed in sizes between 4 and 9 inches. Now, when it was first announced by Stowe that they had finally signed a deal with GamePrint, I was apprehensive about spending the money on a 3D printed ship. After all, 3D printing can vary in quality, and some prints can be a bit grainy. But after I joined their Facebook group, and after I was looking through pictures of other players and fans who had their ships printed, I grew more and more impressed by the quality of their prints. So during their 20% off holiday sale, I made the decision to spend $150 on a 9-inch color-printed model of my Prometheus kit bash. From start to finish, their customer service has been great, and the print itself, well, you know what? I encourage you to check out the unboxing over on our YouTube channel. Links, of course, will be in our show notes. In one word, stunning. Anywho, I was so impressed, I reached out to GamePrint in the hopes of bringing you, our listeners, that same special offer. So in partnership with GamePrint, you can now save 20% off your order. Just use code PRIORITY20, that's PRIORITY20, at checkout. Don't worry, you don't have to go all out like Elijah did and spend 150 bucks. They have print options starting at just 19.99 for a four inch print. So if you've been struggling with which ships you want printed, perhaps that 20% off will give you that extra incentive to start building your own fleet of ships to display proudly at home. Don't play STO, don't worry. They've made a massive library of ships and their variants available for fans to explore. And the best part is you can rename the ship to whatever you want, including the registry number. So log into Star Trek Online, visit your ship's tailor and click the button that reads 3D print this ship or explore the library of ships that have already been uploaded by players of the game. Then use promo code PRIORITY20, again, that's PRIORITY20 at checkout, and you can save 20% off your order, no matter what the size of the ship is. Well, everybody, we're very happy to have with us lead system designer Jeremy Randall and uh, new system designer Jonathan Herlash. Welcome, guys. Thanks for being on the show. Happy to be here again. Thanks for having us. Jeremy, you told us that Jonathan's pretty new to the company, and um, he's been working on some stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we thought that this would be a great opportunity to introduce him. So, Yeah, absolutely. Let him take over. (laughs) Man, how long have you been here, John? Well, since about August. So give or take a little less than six months, something like that. And where did you come from before... Uh, joining Cryptic. Well, I was up in Seattle with uh, Wargaming Seattle, but they got shut down not too long after I got there. Uh, it was, I think, two months or so I spent there. Uh, and then before that, I was uh, working for Riot over in Los Angeles on League of Legends for a little under six years. Oh, wow. So now I know everybody knows where to send their hate mail. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You're a new addition to the systems team, so what exactly 
is it that you cover in Star Trek Online? I'm still leveling up, collecting all my gym badges, that kind of thing, learning the tools. But mm -hmm. uh, Systems generally is responsible for anything that's... Um, Hesitate to use the word systemic, but uh, like ships, uh, abilities, uh, different kinds of critters that you'll interact with on the ground or in space, uh -huh. um, what kinds of moves they do. And then the meta progression systems or systems like uh, personal endeavors that Jeremy worked on very recently, um, mm -hmm. that that kind of thing. Yeah, me personally, I'm in the uh, kind of shallow end of that pool for now. I'm handling uh, items and powers, that kind of thing. We'll get you up to speed in no time. For sure. There's a lot to take in. Bigger and better things to break. And uh, speaking of that, what uh, can you tell us what kind of things that we might know you from? Like, what kind of things are in-game that you've worked on? Well, so far, not too much has made it out yet. But the Emperor's Lockbox is mostly my work, with the exception of the uh, sticks and then a couple of pieces that were done before I took it over. And then there's the Prolonged Engagement Torpedo uh, was something I'd worked on. And then the Beacon of Kalos is the other thing that shipped. And then the uh, there's an upcoming item that'll be out fairly soon as well. I think the Beacon of Kalos was def technically your first thing to go live, wasn't it? That's correct. Now, speaking of the prolonged engagement torpedo, now that's part of a set. When you were brought in to work on that, did you... Is, is there anything different from working in part of a, 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 a gear set than making a one-off item? Well, mechanically, there's a number of differences in terms of, like, how what plugs into where and how specifically the item hooks up. But the main conceptual difference is just trying to figure out what was the fantasy the set was trying to achieve? Like, what what was it supposed to feel like when you completed it and how you played it? And then being as true to that vision as possible while expanding on it. And for something like Prolonged Engagement, that's pretty easy because it's right in the name. You just want to be able to fight successfully for a very long time. Right. And uh, feel like that as the combat keeps ramping up, you're ramping up along with it. That's been something that uh, I think John's been having fun dealing with, actually, in my opinion, from from my perspective, is picking up all this leftover baggage that previous designers had dealt with and kind of taking it over the finish line. The Emperor Lockbox is, I think, a great example of that. It was actually started by a different designer, and he had to finish it off. Wow. So you're kind of the closer, right? They keep you in the bullpen until until they're ready? <laughs> That's the way it's worked out so far. Yeah. Everyone likes a big old box of Legos. That's <laughs> true. Um, was that prolonged set originally planned to be three pieces, or was it just two and then and then you wanted to fit in a third piece to kind of round it out? Uh, my understanding is the original plan was three. Um, it was the alt set type where it's a, a weapon, a torpedo, or a, an energy weapon, a torpedo, and then a console. You mentioned uh, the sticks starship. What exactly was it that you worked on with that? I'm curious as to how systems gets involved in the creation of a ship. Well, sadly, I mentioned it as the example of the thing in the Emperor's Lockbox that I didn't do. Oh, sorry. Uh, that was worked on right. by another systems designer. But, no, but um, I, can, I can answer a bit of that sure, as well, please. though. Um, the Sticks is, was almost completely designed from concept by myself and Jet working together, Spartan. All right. Who I think a lot of people know about. Um, she's now our lead, our lead ship designer at this point. Uh -huh. So she's the one that would actually build all of the powers, all of the stats, the seating arrangements, ah. um, the starship traits. So that's the side, kind of the side of things that the systems team right. um, manages, that, that handles. We don't do the art, obviously, because, yep. man, you should see some of our whiteboard <laughs> art. Um, <laughs> um, so you're, you're probably glad we don't do the art. Um, so, But all the guts, all the things that actually make it fly, make it work, make it fight. That's all systems teamwork. Ah, right. Okay, that's interesting. John, another thing that you've been working on just recently is the uh, the Crystal Prism, which I, I think is going out with our event next week. Tell a little bit about that, because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you had a bit of fun working on that. 
Oh yeah, it's nice getting into the the guts of how the, the sort of scripting engine works and being able to hook up something a little more complicated. Uh, Crystal Prism, you you can hold three charges of it, and uh, you can have up to five of them out in the world. They're like sort of crystalline turrets almost, and they link together. So when you place them down, they'll form a little network, and the more of them you have linked together, the more damaging their attacks are. But getting that logic to work properly in terms of when crystals are added or removed if they're destroyed was a fun challenge. And um, the way they work, they refresh each other's duration, so you can keep a farm of five of them going more or less indefinitely. Yeah, the use case we were kind of aiming for is to have players um, sort of continuously to chain these along as they walk through a mission. So you keep having a string, a network, as John called it, uh, of these attacking crystals. It's really cool stuff. Really hard to do. <laughs> One of my tasks as the lead systems designer is having to review the work of, of the guys that work for me, like John, and, and uh, I admit a little bit of, I don't know how this works, when I <laughs> looked at the work that he had done on the prism. Right. Well, that's, you usually want your team to be smarter than you, right? Yeah, one of the uh, cornerstones of, of hiring people for Cryptic is always try to hire people that are smarter than you. <laughs> and I, I think we got that with John. Hey, now. <laughs> yeah, setting the bar high. Don't let me down. <laughs> and is this a new kit module or a device or... Universal kit module, yes. It's a universal kit module, right. And this would be bound on pickup to character. I would imagine. I imagine so. I'm not 100% familiar with that, but I think that's how TFO rewards tend to work. Right. Yeah, but they will be account-wide unlocks. So once you finish ah, the event okay. project, any character on your account should be able to reclaim it. Awesome. Good stuff. Good stuff. Oh, great. So it's part It's part of a TFO project similar to the BKS. Yeah, this, will, uh, this next uh, event that it'll be the reward of is one of, is our second in the series of that we're call, starting to call featured TFOs. Uh, when a new TFO right. comes out, we'll run it featured with an event project, and then later on it'll just start appearing in the standard TFO rotations. Oh, so this is how those tentpole events is going to work from here on out. So it's unlikely that we'll have another Battle at the Binary Stars event? Uh, Battle at the Binary Stars particularly, I can, I think I can pretty much guarantee, I think, well, let's say that the plan is as of today, yeah. that it will not come back. <laughs> right, okay, okay. Um, because it was part of the featured TFO, and now something else is taking its place as being featured. Um, I, I don't know that I can say that this is definitely the way it will go from now on. Right. Um, we Like, for example, we may still at some point in the future bring back uh, the Mirror Invasion or the Crystalline Catastrophe, or is it Cataclysm? Yes. I always get those mixed up. But uh, this new featured TFO event cadence is definitely something that we saw go over well with binary, battle of binary stars so we're going to keep doing it at least that's again that's the plan as of today right okay well let's jump into some listener questions so the hayden family is asking is there any way that we can get more filter options for the admiralty system specifically the one-time use uh, admiralty ships are you talking about the the roster that kind of appears when you're mm-hmm. slotting things? Yeah, I think well, because there's there's the option to filter out cruisers, tactical ships, and science ships, and I think they're asking if there could also be an option to uh, filter in or out the single use ships. Okay, so I have a, a, a kind of bad answer for that. Yes, it's possible, but my question is why? Um, single use ships are meant to be as you obtain them, use them. They're single use. Um, so the question that I would would pose to I guess the listeners is why what is the motivation to hide them why would you want to save them for later that seems to be the reason for wanting to hide them I guess so I guess what I'm saying is I'd rather find a way that you would want to hide everything else if anything 
because the single-use ships should be the ones that you're chewing through on a, on a regular basis. They're, they're meant for you to, to obtain and use as you get them. So something was messed up in the system, it sounds like to me. I can't speak for anybody else, but I know whenever I finish a game like Skyrim or something, I always have way more consumables than I've ever used. Just sure, big I, buckets I think, of I, I think that's basically what it comes down to, is the, the consumable uh, psychology. Like, well, do I need this now or do I need it later? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes the answer to that is just making the thing that you, it gets consumed so ubiquitous that you attach no value to them and you just chew them up immediately. But in the case of Admiralty, that would step on the um, on some of the monetization aspects that we have in there. We want you to feel the value for obtaining ships by filling up your Admiralty roster. So if you're filling it up with a bunch of one-time use free ships, it steps on that design. I think for me, because I tend to – I kind of understand this question because I have a lot of single-use ships. I think for me it's I'm saving them for when I actually like really need them, like when I'm trying to run through – um, you know, for instance, if it's Dilithium Weekend and I'm trying to run through the Klingon Admiralty uh, campaign again, 1 through 10, I, I'm more apt to use the single-use ships during that time, whereas if I'm just doing my daily Admiralty stuff, I probably don't really need to see them at that point. So maybe that's maybe that's kind of where their thought process is. Yeah. And Ultimately, what I'm, what I'm wondering is what is the use case and why would they want to be hidden? If it's just do you want them hidden all the time, then clearly they're not serving a purpose. So... Um, ultimately, to answer the question, though, yeah, it's possible to make filters. That doesn't mean that it's easy. <laughs> right, right. Also, that's actually something that our UI team would have to take care of, not technically systems. Um, so gotcha. I can't can't speak for the workload on them. While we're talking about Admiralty stuff, uh, I'm, I'm curious, is there any new Admiralty campaigns in the near future? coming into Star Trek Online, possibly? There's no tagline that Mike is very fond of about, uh, we don't talk about upcoming content. (laughs) (laughs) Until we do, is the uh, caveat there. (laughs) So, that's a confirmation. (laughs) I can confirm that we have not announced a new Admiralty campaign. (laughs) (laughs) Along with this discussion, some users are also asking, is, is there a way to claim the Admiralty card from a sea store ship without having to actually commission the ship? Or I should say, would there ever be an option to do that? I know how desirable that feature would be. And so behind the scenes, and again, take no promises from this, but we have been talking about um, ways in which we can improve our sea store interface overall. And it has come up in at least one of those discussions of adding, if, if possible, functionality linked to the microtransaction ships at the very least mm-hmm. to be able to just claim the ship. No guarantee if that would come to pass, but it has been something we talked about. And that would alleviate at least part of the uh, the pain point there. Of, you know, if you make a new character, you want to fill up your Admiralty roster, you technically already own possibly hundreds of ships. Right. Going through that process, I understand how much of a, of a, of a uh, annoyance it can be. Um, so we have talked about uh, a few ways, like I just mentioned, of potentially alleviating that in the future. That's great. That's that's actually awesome that that's been discussed at some point. So at least it's on the radar somewhere. Yeah, but that discussion, you know, might bear fruit of that's impossible. <laughs> that's hey, as long look, I think I think most of our listeners, as long as at some point it it it's been investigated, I think that's good enough for at least some of them. At the very least, I can confirm. You know, we know about it. We'd like to try and solve it. 
um, in all of our copious free time. <laughs> gotcha. And on a side note, I don't know if this is even related to you guys or not, but I I know I personally have had a problem claiming ships I've purchased in the past from the sea store. I actually am not able to claim certain ships right now on any of my characters. I guess my first question is, uh, does that have anything to do with systems, number one? And number two, uh, if it does or does not, do you know if that's if there's a fix on the way for that, because um, I know a lot of people have been asking about that. So first of all, the most important part of that, yes, there is a fix on the way. I believe it's already working on internal builds. Um, it's not a systems um, thing, but because it impacts microtransactions, which John and I um, do make quite a few of. In fact, actually, John just made the bridge officers as well that went into the recent bundle. So we're aware of the issue. Uh, but it's a software thing, and it has to do with switching over our microtransaction system in the in the back on the back end uh, in a way that I'm in a way that I'm excited about, but it makes no sense to anybody outside of the company. <laughs> it allows <laughs> us to, to more accurately track data and oh, uh, figure well, out what people are buying and why and how and how frequently and just basically better tracking uh, yeah. allow us to create microtransactions that hopefully more people enjoy instead of just focusing on the same things over and over. Awesome. Well, thank you for that update. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I want to say that that update will be included in next week's patch, but all I know is that it is working internally at this time. Cool. Uh, okay, our next question comes from uh, Colonel Mustard, and they're asking, or they're wondering, is adding more rep and R&D and lobby items to re-engineering still on the table? Boy, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's even still written on my whiteboard. So right now, we are... As, as a team, Star Trek Online is actually coming out of a very difficult a difficult time. Uh, we've been kind of running full steam ahead, warp 9.999 for close to a year now, mm -hmm. um, from prior to Victory's Life, and then we made a sudden shift to get in line with Discovery, because, duh, we would get right. in line with Discovery. Yep. Uh, but that required a lot of upfront work. Um, we've been pushing ourselves very, very hard over the last year, year plus really but at this time we're starting to come out of that we are re-examining our launch cadence for 2019 and beyond and realizing that well not realizing but coming to recognize that we can take it start taking it a little easier and that means more time in the schedule for things like uh, colonel mustard has asked about more more quality of life more updates to systems that haven't been seeing a lot of attention recently uh, i can't say that any of that is currently uh scheduled right but I, I will say that we are looking at a time in the future, in the very near future for us as developers, a little more distant for the players, uh, where more of that has an opportunity to, to occur. Cool. So my next question is uh, about a different system in Star Trek Online, and um, it's basically the duty officer system. I'm curious if this is going to be something that's going to get a revamp at some point in the future. I have had a extremely rough draft for a revamp um, written up for close to three years now. Oh, wow. Uh, and it hasn't come to pass. One of the biggest hurdles in revamping old systems is the amount of um, cognitive dissonance that it would cause among existing players and whether or not uh, the benefits of doing a revamp offset that dissonance. Mm -hmm. Duty officers have been around in the game for as long as I've been employed by Cryptic. Right. Uh, so they're, they're actually a little older than me, technically. <laughs> um, and that means that a lot of players have a lot of 
value attached to that. And I don't just mean monetarily. I mean emotionally. I mean uh, gameplay-wise. They've invested a lot right. into the way that the system currently works. And it's not perfect. Obviously, we as designers and Cryptic as a, as a whole has learned a lot of lessons from the way that duty officers work and how we could have done it better mm -hmm. uh, or how we think we could have done it better. But in order to take it to those places, it would mean destroying, at least in part, what currently exists. And a lot of players wouldn't take that well. Yeah. And so figuring out a way to balance those needs, both our needs and wants as designers and the needs and wants of our players, is a really tricky subject. Um, thus far, we haven't found that it was a good idea to pull the trigger. And actually, some of those previous discussions are what birthed the Admiralty system. Uh -huh. um, we wanted to take a stab at what... Um, what we could do with duty officers and it just so happened we were also trying to figure out a way to give additional value to ships, ships. that you weren't flying and right. they kind of just coincided in a it was kismet in a way well if it's something that uh, you're not prepared to uh, you know give a full revamp to do you think there'd be any chance that you might you know add on to it like um, putting out more nebulas and clusters you know the assignment chains that are attached there mm -hmm. like even you know just adding on to what's currently there because uh, right now if memory serves it's only alpha and beta quadrant it's not even all of alpha quadrant that actually has nebulas and clusters there's nothing in the delta and there's nothing in the gamma quadrants yeah that sounds accurate um, this is kind of a um, where do you want to put your money mm. discussion is really what it, what a lot of this boils down to and there boy, I could probably spend hours talking about that, but most of, you, of your listeners would likely find it incredibly boring. Uh, it's sort of the, the meta production level of, of building out a game. Um, there's, Unfortunately, if I could change this, I would, but there are a finite number of hours in a day and a finite number of people that can actually work on your game. And a lot of the discussions and decisions that go into what do we actually make for the game it, they always have to be balanced against the wants of players, like uh, players that want an expansion of the duty officer system, and the wants of people who want to make paychecks, like myself. Yes. And I, I would like very much to continue to be employed by this game. <laughs> <laughs> so when you talk about expanding anything, um, like Colonel Mustard asked about uh, more re-engineering, it kind of all falls in the same bucket. It's different discussions at a at a finite at a. Uh, detailed level but the overarching discussion is really mostly the same mm -hmm. can we afford to spend time doing this or do we need to make another lockbox right. another event another reputation another whatever it is that we feel is necessary for the business for the uh, product for the game to continue to offer the, us the opportunity so that we can even consider making expansions to other things that might not make us any money right this, it's always a give and take yeah and we are not as big of a team as we used to be, so that discussion shifts over time and sometimes in some areas gets more difficult. But like I said, in the very near future, I feel like the STO team is moving into a place where we will have more leeway to make a few more of those decisions where we can focus on expanding old systems, adding features, and uh, updating things. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, yeah. but uh, we shall see. Okay. Uh, so last time we spoke with Al, he had pretty much confirmed that the, at least the hopes and the goal is to have most, if not all, of the tier six ships eventually be scalable and uh, scalable with level. Um, I'm wondering, is there any is there any talks or discussions about possibly getting gear 
that would also level with you, possibly through the fleet, uh, like the elite gear or something that you could get that that would be able to level up with you as well? We do leveling gear kind of sparingly, and that's on purpose because we feel like the, the act of getting new equipment as you level up is not cornerstone, but it is important to the idea of feeling like your character is growing over time. Uh, and if you were to be able to step out the gate with a full set of gear that you never had to pay any attention to, you lose something in the experience. You lose the, the feeling of getting that new toy and being able to see how it improved your character. That doesn't mean we don't do it, but that's a reason that we've done it sparingly thus far. And I think that we will probably continue to do so uh, sparingly. Mostly through things like mission rewards, event rewards, and I think on the low buy store, we do this on occasion. Mm-hmm. You'll You'll likely see more things like that pop up over time. Uh, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Crystal Prism Turret can be used at any level, for example. Yeah, I'm not aware of any level restriction on it. Yeah, so seeing more gear of that type offered through, uh, again, those areas I just mentioned, missions, special events, and the low-buy store, I think that's likely to continue, just not to a huge uh, degree. I think for a lot of players, especially ones that like to create new characters and level up new characters... It is a little bit difficult when you go to take advantage of a double XP weekend and you want to level up a new character to be able to, you know, keep on par with the gear that you need as you're, you know, sort of blowing through the missions because they're, yeah. they, they're trying to get that character to end game. I know I personally have had similar issues. The Delta recruitment event was a great opportunity where you could get some new gear, you know, every 10 levels to yep. help alleviate that. Do you think it would be possible that it's some kind of an end game reward that you're able to then sort of give or, or craft scalable gear for a new character on your account? Yeah, that's not off the table. I, I, I also I want to say that I'm, I made a microtransaction at one point that it might still be on the C-Store that offers similar gear packs. Um, so if if the player wants that sort of thing and is willing to put out a few bucks, I think that's still available. Although, I, I could be wrong. That could have been a short-time promo. But there should be some options for that. I hear what you're saying about the XP because leveling up an STO can be very quick, especially uh, XP weekends. So yeah, I guess it's a balancing act and something we, we might want to pay a little more attention to now that your ships scale. But honestly, that's actually something we're very very cognizant of and are keeping a close watch on. Like One of the reasons that it took us several different iterations to make sure we were happy with the way that scaling ships were going to work before going full, full bore on it is we were concerned about the... If you never change your ship, if you don't get a new ship every 10 levels... Does the experience of leveling up through STO lose luster? Like, do you do your promotions feel like they mean less? Uh, do you feel like you're not getting as much from leveling up? What we've seen so far with our experiments thus far is that it either doesn't have an impact or it has a very small impact, which is why we're going forward. But I am curious to hear more as we release more ships if that becomes bigger issue. Well, I think I think Winters, you had you had an opinion about this after after using the um, prototype Walker class, right? Yeah. So what what I actually noticed was because I wasn't you know returning to ESD every ten levels to get a new ship, I ended up with very low quality gear. Because, you know, every time, every 10 levels, you would get a new ship and, you know, it'd be Mark 4 gear and then it'd be Mark 6 gear and then Mark 8 and so on. Yeah. And uh, I found, you know, I was at level 40 and I had like Mark 4 weapons. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, it was really difficult. Did you feel that was as though the ships weren't supplying you with that standard issue gear or was it because you were just weren't being uh, pointed towards that 
what you might call a maintenance cycle of returning to Earth space dock and, and looking at your gear. It felt because I wasn't getting a new ship. Under normal circumstances, when I would get a new ship, I would get new gear. And the only things I would keep mm. would be the consoles. But the weapons and the impulse engine and the shield, that would all be an upgrade and appropriate for my level. Granted, it's only common stuff, but it was still yeah. an upgrade from what I had. And as a result, I found the content become a lot more difficult. That's interesting. And that is something, actually, that we will be addressing. Uh, I had forgotten awesome. about this, but it's actually on my plate to take care of, so I better not forget. In the future, when we make the conversion for all for all the ships that will be scalable, right. uh, we are planning to, for them to be outfitted with levelless versions oh. of that standard issue gear. Oh, very good. So they won't be entirely up to par with most of the drops that you'll get, but it's, right. it's going to be better than nothing, and it's going to be better than running a Mark II engine right. in, a, in a level 30 ship. Yeah, uh, yeah. It will at least be um, up to par. Well, that sounds like that would definitely tackle the issue if, yeah, if those ships were coming with level, levelless gear. At least as you're talking about the standard issue gear. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. should. Awesome. So our next question comes from Rob Mac one and he is wondering what is happening with sponsorship tokens? Not a whole lot, is it? <laughs> Currently, not an awful lot. So these were basically deprecated. For anybody that might not know, this is a way that you used to be able to, once you had maxed out one reputation, you could buy, buy, earn, gain a sponsorship token with that character to give to your alts through the account bank mm -hmm. so that they could level up that same reputation more quickly. Uh, when we expanded reputations to tier six, we made it so that hitting tier five just gives that functionality automatically. Huge quality of life improvement, but it meant that anybody that had already gotten sponsorship tokens doesn't get to do anything with them. I'm raising my hand. I'm raising my hand right now. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually know. I, I think that Spartan was saying that she had amassed, like, because she likes to make alts. So I think she's got, like, 12 of each in her bank and, and nothing to do with them now. <laughs> so it is a, uh, a matter that we have to figure out how to what to do about them and how to do it as easily and painlessly as possible. That's something that we've been focusing more uh, on as designers is... Uh, so, for example, we could just have it so that double-clicking a sponsorship token opens a store where you can sell it. That's a solution, but uh, I don't know how much we would sell it back for, maybe full value, I don't know, the discussion for another day. The problem is that most players won't understand that you can double-click them and even if we put it in the description, they could still overlook it because they are expecting these things to just get transferred. They just want them to translate. If they're no longer of any use, just take them away from me. So that's just one example of things like we, we could do what might be called a half-ass solution. But we're trying more and more to do the right solution instead of something that, eh, it works, let's ship it. Which has been the case, with sadly, with some things in the past. I know that one example I can think of is... Um because up until recently, I had several of the old, um, you know, anniversary Q vouchers from probably six years ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I had no idea that I could turn them into upgrades or other stuff in, in the buyback store. Exactly. I That's didn't a know great that example. existed until recently. It, it was a solution, but it's not technically a good one. And a lot of players probably don't even know it exists. Case in point. So it's, speaking a little bit of, um, of quality of life stuff in general, um, with with nine years of of this game, managing inventories has become something of a mini game for us players who have been around for a long time. Do you think that it's you know recently you made the reputation reward boxes stackable, um, which is an amazing improvement? Is 
can we look forward to any similar improvements uh, in regards to inventory space and inventory management? Probably. So things like increasing stack limits, yes. I, I think you'll see those kind of things just pop up occasionally in patch notes to improve the matter a little bit. I will say that managing inventory is part of an MMO. You, As a player, uh, you should be expected to have to at least deal with that a little bit. We do monetize inventory slots for a reason. Uh, so there's that's not to say that we want to inconvenience you, but it does mean that we're not going to make it infinite or make everything stack. Uh, there's there's a balancing act there that still has to be maintained. I have a feeling that part of the subtext of this question is also like, hey, you promised us a vanity pet tab like three years ago. Where the hell is it, Mordecus? <laughs> um, yeah, it's still written on my whiteboard. I still have a design doc for it, but I, that's another one of those things where we really have to um, examine the uh, risk versus reward, the uh, the return on investment, all that sort of thing to make sure that it's something that we can execute on. But yeah, inventory improvements are something that um, as the game continues to grow and more and more rewards become available for players, um, they, uh, yeah, we, we understand the pain of having to, we know that most of our collector, our game, our gamers are collectors. Otherwise we wouldn't sell as many ships. We wouldn't sell as many vanity pets. We wouldn't sell as many reputation rewards. Well, not sell, but people wouldn't be motivated to get them. Our players love to collect things. And we should find a way to facilitate that better than we currently have been. I mean, I, I personally, my half of my bank, my main character's bank, is filled with my Tribble collection. I have one of every yeah. Tribble in the game. One, one specific item I'm thinking of is similar to the reputation rewards is the R&D packs that you get from TFOs. Those are not stackable, and I tend to fill up on those a lot. Mm-hmm. And now, granted, I could probably just open them all up, but it's, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm just blasting through a bunch of TFOs and then I have to stop and, and, and go through them before I can continue. Yeah, I would say those are probably on the short list of things that will increase the stack limits for. One of the, one of the thought processes behind that, and it, it's, it doesn't work for all players, clearly, uh, is if it's a box, just open it. Especially if it's going to be something that you barely have to worry about the stack limits. The R&D bag is enormous. Um, not limitless, but enormous. And so the idea there was you should just open the things that you're getting because it doesn't matter if they're opened. It's also kind of a, um, it, let's say, for example, that we changed them to auto open uh, so you didn't have to look at the box at all. We have found that a lot of players don't acknowledge that they're being rewarded if they don't have to right. interact with the reward, right. um, which can be a negative experience in and of itself. So, yeah. Game design is hard, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the term I've heard for the opening boxes thing is a beasting problem. If you're keeping up with it and you're opening the boxes as you're getting them, it's fine. But once they start to accumulate and you have like 10 in your bag and you get another one, taking the time to open all 10, it starts to feel prohibitive. Yeah. Um, the beasting analogy is like if you get stung by a bee, you can go run it under cold water. You take care of it. You maybe, I don't know, clean it a little bit. Maybe even put a Band-Aid on it if you're extra concerned. But if you've already been stung a few times, you get stung again, you're not going to do anything. You don't care at that point. You're just getting on with whatever you're right. doing. Right. And I think, yeah. I think for me, what, because I, you know, I have, you know, probably half my bank is full, right? My, my, uh, my inventory, not my bank, but my inventory is full of, of stuff that I like to carry around with me. And now with the, uh, random TFOs, I'm, I'm just popping in, you know, I'm just going through TFOs. Like I'll spend a day and I'll spend, you know, four hours and I'll just go through a bunch of TFOs. And what ends up happening is that those rewards start to stack up. And the next thing I know, my inventory is full and I have to stop 
doing TFOs in order to, yeah. and th- that's the point where it becomes a negative experience for me. It's all a matter of balancing one negative experience against another. Sadly, like uh, figuring out which is the less, the least evil. <laughs> right, right. Because or example, the least impactful. If we, if we increase the. Um, the stack limit on R&D packs to 100. You're going to end up with a stack of 100. I know you will. And then you're going to have to sit there and open them all, aren't you? <laughs> this is true. And then and then I'll complain about that. And then we'll right. and then we can go from there. <laughs> but let's can we get to that point first? I think it's like open negotiations for a right click open all. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See? Jonathan, you you're right, Jeremy. You made the right hire cuz this guy is great. <laughs> You say that now, but there's like we can't just do that. We can do the stack limit thing ourselves, but the right click thing is like that's that's not something systems could just do. <laughs> that's treading into coding territory. Yeah. So our next question comes from Reddit, and uh, it's from John one seven six four, and he's wondering why is there a one is to one ratio for dilithium when converting to fleet credits. Shouldn't we get more fleet credits since dilithium is more valuable? Well, possibly. But what you're talking about is the basis of the entire fleet credit system. It's kind of like, um, well, to, to uh, the analogy kind of is to the gold standard for the dollar. Like, at one point in time, a dollar was worth a certain amount of gold. It, it's not anymore. The same could be made tr- uh, statements for dilithium to fleet credits. When the system was conceptualized and all of the the mathematics behind how much things cost and how many resources you have to put in and what you get in return in fleet credits and how much items cost in fleet credits. Mm-hmm. All of that was calculated around this uh, this gold standard of one fleet credit or one dilithium equals one fleet credit. Now, over time, the economy of the game has changed to a point where that doesn't seem to bear out. Uh, in fact, some of the initial designs probably influenced the fact that that doesn't bear out. But now changing it has a lot of ripples. Yeah. And a lot of implications on not just the fleet system itself, but the economy elsewhere as well. So while technically it could be done, we could go through the entire fleet system and change that you get instead of one to one, maybe it's two to one or one and a half to one or, or whatever we wanted to do. Doing so has consequences and has to be done with care when you look at the economy of such a, a large and old game. So while we're still talking about fleets, mm-hmm. since the fleet system was introduced... It's basically been expanded upon six or seven times, you know, uh, with new holdings. A lot of fleets out there, particularly when the colony world came along, really do struggle to fill projects. And again, this is coming back to Dilithium. The Dilithium costs are really, really high. Now, I know the Armada system dealt with that a little bit, uh, but unfortunately... Uh, you know, big fleets tend to group together because they want the bigger discounts and they don't really want the smaller fleets. I'm curious yeah, sure. if this is something that you guys are aware of and maybe, you know, is it time for us to get another dilithium mine, fleet dilithium mine that gives, you know, a discount uh, to all future projects and upgrade costs? It's entirely possible, uh, although I will put a caveat on the fact that fleet holdings are one of our most expensive in terms of dev man hours, one of the most expensive things we can do outside of potentially some of our uh, story episodes. Those, mm-hmm. those can get really expensive as well. But fleet holdings touch every single discipline, and they touch every single one of those disciplines in a very significant way. And so I don't know how likely it is that we might ever do another fleet holding, to be honest. Oh, wow. Uh, we... I think it's something that's on the books, but it's such an investment that I 
don't know if we want to invest that much. The game has changed, the player base has changed, and the dev team has changed. It may be a product of, a, of, a, of another time at this point. Um, but if we don't do another fleet holding, we'll figure out another way to have fleets have something that they can invest in over time. So with that said, uh, I do want to point out that the colony was an experiment in doing a basically a second star base. Yes. Uh, up until that point, all of the other satellite holdings were just that. They were smaller yeah. satellite holdings. The Dilithium mine, the embassy, they were uh, like a quarter or maybe a half of the size of what it took to invest in the star base. Um, the, the colony has done some good things for us. It's taught us some lessons. I think it's even less likely that if we ever do another holding, that it'll ever be the size of the colony. Right. So some of your players out there might be cheering over that statement. <laughs> as far as the costs are concerned, do keep in mind that the fleet holding system was originally designed around the idea of 25 players in a fleet. Uh, because when we created the system, that appeared to be an approximate average for what we considered to be an active fleet. Right. So the cost calculations of how much do we want 25 players, what percentage of their daily time should be spent investing into the fleet, all of those calculations are also a product of another age. You know, back when the fleet holdings were first introduced, there weren't that many ways to spend dilithium. Yes, yeah, well, and definitely. And players earned quite a lot. Mm. Uh, up to 8,000, up to 8,000 8, refined on a daily basis, or 8,500 for bets uh, before the Dilithium mine. And then they didn't have much to spend it on. So the original calculations, I don't recall the exact value, but it was probably a good amount of that daily allotment per those 25 players that we expected them to put in. Um, probably 1,000, maybe 2,000 daily. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that the, the cost calculations are a bit aggressive. Uh, it comes from a time where there were just fewer dilithium sinks. Now, these days, you have so many things that you can potentially be putting your dilithium towards. Yeah. Uh, upgrades and reputations and, and your fleet holding still and a whole number of other things and trading it in for Zen if you're one of those types of guys. Yeah. There are a lot of ways to spend your, your dilithium these days where there weren't previously. So while the prices haven't changed and the economy hasn't changed and the amount that you can earn hasn't changed, what has changed is what you want to do with it. And that makes it feel different. That makes it feel like a bigger pinch. You know, you still have a finite amount that you can get each day. Yeah. So we understand these facts, but that comes back to the, the thing I just said previously about making the value of dilithium change for fleets. It could technically be done, but it's a very large and economically rippling thing that we would have to do with care yeah. and make sure that we understand all of the impacts that it could have if we wanted to do it. One more thing, actually, I just remembered about the colony. We actually did attempt to alleviate this a little bit with the colony by way of the colony provisions. Yes. Those actually, as far as our calculations on the back end were concerned, those take directly off the dilithium investments that are required. Uh, so instead of having to put in your, your shiny pink stones, you just have to play the game and get these provisions instead. Uh, it was a secondary uh, form of currency in a way. Yeah, but I'm I'm thinking what a lot of players, you know, what they see is that you know the system has been expanded upon. What did I say? Six or seven times since. I think that's about right. Yeah, yeah. since the system initially came came out, and the numbers, like you said, you know, was based off 25 people, but the system has expanded, you know, since then, and it's still those 25 mm -hmm. people, and there there's a lot of very very small fleets. You know, you get you know, maybe a neighborhood of, you know, a couple of guys that make their own fleet and, you know, there's only half a dozen guys in it. Um, th there's an awful lot of small fleets out there and they really do struggle to try and build up their, their fleets. And the, mm -hmm. the system kind of encourages, you know, the bigger giants in the game. 
and like I, I mentioned earlier, the Armada system kind of tackled that a little bit. It was a good addition to the game, don't get me wrong, uh, but it kind of encouraged the big boys to stick together uh, so that everyone can benefit from the bonuses because nobody wanted the small ones. I won't deny that, but that the problem there I don't see as much of a design one as as much as it is a social problem. Um, where like it, there are incentives, sure, but the the system was also designed to incentivize small fleets to be the the betas and gammas mm-hmm. for the the large fleets. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't we couldn't perfect that. Most of it is all about social engineering, and and we're just systems designers, not. In fact, we probably aren't very good with social skills in general, to be frank. <laughs> but, <laughs> Your words. <shots> fired. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, there's, there's, there's some things that we can't help with. And a lot of the, the reasons that the Armada system doesn't work as well as it could is all about the ways in which players want to socialize with one another mm-hmm. or feel like they're getting the most out of their social experiences. Mm-hmm. And the social experiences is actually one of the hardest things about dealing with fleets in general. Like, for example, the, the uh, example that you just gave of maybe two or three guys want to get together and just form their little clique, their little tiny uh, fleet, and they want to feel like they can get something out of that. But how do we as designers balance the idea of a three-person fleet against a 3,000-person right, fleet right. or armada? Um, and make sure that they're feeling like they get something out of it that is that is worth the much larger investment that they can offer. It's frankly, it's not really possible. We, you could try some things, and some other online games out there I know have. Mm-hmm. Like uh, for there's one that I know of that actually gives. Uh, it's, it works out as being penalties, but the larger your fleet is, the higher your requirements get on certain um, progression milestones. Oh, wow. And yeah, we could have done something like that, but then it does f- end up feeling like you're penalized for having a lot for of friends. For succeeding, yeah. And that, eh, I don't, that doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. So it's a really tricky thing, and most of it comes down to social engineering and not systems design. Mm-hmm. So the console version of the game has a lot of... Uh, unique control schemes and um, some UI interface. I know you're not the UI department, but is there any talks about bringing some of the system aspects of of how the console players interact with their boffs or or auto fire options or anything like that over to the PC side? Oh, oh, you're talking about the yeah. No, I know what you're talking about. Auto execute is what we call it. Um, for being able to set up certain triggers for, like, if I'm below 50% exactly. health, activate yeah. this bridge officer. Yeah, okay. We have talked about potentially porting that back, but there's a big first hurdle to overcome, which is that that system is not great and kind of needs some reimagining. Uh, it's also, I mean, players wouldn't know this, but it's not implemented very well in our engine either, and it's kind of a bear to work with. So trying to overcome that as well is uh, is something that we need. Um, I guess what I'm what I'm saying in the short form is, it's possible that that could come that could, that could show up on PC in the future, but a lot of things under the hood and in the way that it works for players would need to change first. Because uh, at least for my part, I'm not happy with the way that it performs on console. I guess it's better than nothing, but only just. Is that an area that you guys ever really look at? Is what is working on one version of the game and what is working on another, and seeing if you can you know sort of bring them to the other one? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I think in the very near future, without giving too much away, you will see some some changes motivated by that. We we have gotten better as a company about looking at the way that players respond to our game across a huge myriad of different uh, things that we can track. And as much as possible, we want to make the game better. So if we can see what players are responding well to, we want to make more things do that. 
So as we get more data and as we're able to parse that data more clearly, yes, you will see. If, if, if something is performing better on console than it does on PC, we're going to try to find out why, and then we're going to try to do that. I don't want to keep you guys too long. Winners, do you have anything else? I have one little question here. I think I know the answer, but is there any surprises possibly coming up for the 10th year anniversary? Is that going to be a big year for you guys? Well, we have to figure out how to change the one-digit displays to a two-digit displays. <laughs> That's going to be... Uh... Oh, wait, this is Y2K all over again. <laughs> <laughs> Don't Actually, the banners? Don't the banners yeah, say zero? Right? The banners say zero nine. They're so, already uh, never mind. My joke is is worthless. <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know. That's a long ways away, and we tend to only develop or or make plans for about six to eight months in the future. At least ones that we can reasonably say are going to come to pass. So that's a whole year out. I don't think we've started making plans yet. But come on, ten years. That's got to be big. Yeah. And at that point, hopefully, we will have another season of Discovery coming. You know, fingers crossed. Yes, um, and maybe the Picard show. It will will be teasing out at that point. Um, yeah. There's. I think right now is such a cool time for Star Trek as a property. Yes. That so I'm true. just excited about what that can mean for us as a as a game that works so closely with our partners. Yeah. Um, I I think that yes. Without knowing even myself what those details would be, sure, of course, the tenure is going to be awesome. Yeah. It's, it's just a conversation that a few of us had uh, within the Priority One Armada. Uh, with like, wow, well, you know, next year's got to be huge. It's got to be absolutely massive. Uh, so I just wanted to, you know, throw that out there and, you know. Well, I have an idea to pitch. We're going to be, we're going to demote all players back to level 10 <laughs> in celebration. Uh, I know a lot of players have said that they don't want to be admirals. They want to go back to being a captain. So this is a... Uh, just giving you what you want. Fantastic. <laughs> Probably Fantastic. like a Binar's second anniversary joke hiding in there somewhere. I can't quite figure oh, it yeah. out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, this guy's even got got uh, Trek, Trek cred. This is great. Oh, yeah, totally. Jeremy, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to answer our questions and our listeners' questions. And uh, we hope you guys will come back and visit us again. For sure. sure. Hopefully I'll have more to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Get some more under my belt. Yeah, seriously. Thanks a million. Hello, Captains, and now we are joined by several, several different artists from Star Trek Online who work on various aspects of the game, and like before, we're going to go round robin so you can put a voice to the name. So please, uh, tell us your name and your position. Uh, hi, I'm Joe, and I'm the UI artist on STO. Hi, I'm Chris. I am the effects artist for STO. Hi, I'm Ian. I'm the lead character artist on STO. Hey there, I'm Weston. I'm the animator for STO. Awesome. So, man, where to begin, right? We have we have so many different aspects of the game to cover here. Uh, why don't we why don't we start with character? Um, for instance, and probably most prominently, everybody's sitting back. Everybody's like, <laughs> we don't have to do anything. <laughs> Take it away, Ian. <laughs> no pressure. You had uh, most recently brought to life, virtually, uh, Mary Wiseman's character, right? Is that would that fall under your purview? Um, it fell under my managerial purview. We have an artist named George Castillo. He's a very talented artist. He did most of the heavy lifting on on um, on Tilly and Killy, and so yes. So what is the process, you know, with respect to, you know, being a character artist? Um, a lot of it has to do with uh, management of time, at least for me, because um, since there's only very few of us on the team, 
and there's a lot of demand for a lot of the character art. We have to manage our time wisely. Um, normally, in the perfect world, we would get a lot of time to do everything custom, as we say. Like, everything would be totally unique. But in on Star Trek, in a lot of cryptic games, we like to make um, like hands that can be reused on other characters, or, or feet that would be used on other characters, or... You can extend that to like um, jackets and pants that can be used on other characters. So we, we approach everything in a modular sense. So even though Killy's hands or Tilly's hands might be made for her, we, we might say, hey, you know, we can use this on another character. Or uh, more importantly, her hair. Her hair could be, you know, it's tied up, but we've never had that, that's that particular hairstyle. Now we can, you know, if we have given more assets and more resources to it, we can give it to other NPCs or even players for that matter. So you meant you said that you know it's about time management and demands. What kind of demands? What what is it that you're always on top of? The overlying, uh, I guess, directive is give everything to the players, right? Like everything we make, everything that we we end up giving, whether it's to Tilly or NPC or a monster, uh, we end up we try to give it to the players. But um, in doing so, we have to test it and to sort of make sure it mixes well with other costume parts. Because there are some custom parts that simply don't, um, that we make simply are just so unique to the character that we can't just give it out to the to the vast uh, sea of other parts that can be mixed in together, right? Like, if we made, let's say, a custom uh, chess piece for a certain monster or a, char- a character, that chess piece from the show might be so unique that if you tried to mix it with let's say pants from next generation that it would it simply wouldn't fit together so um, in the perfect world you know we could go in there massage a few things but then there's always the time management issue so i don't know if you know this but you are under perfect world <laughs> yes ah, <laughs> that'll get edited out yeah. <laughs> i actually had a question about uh the timing so when you take a character like mm-hmm. somebody like um Cadet Tilly or something. How long does it take you to actually design that character, and how does that work with contract negotiations? If you are uh, not necessarily sure if that person is actually going to be in the game, like sure. how, how do you make sure that those two things happen at the same time? We usually are given, let's say, fair warning. Let's say um, a popular celebrity is being, let's say, asked to be in our game. Right? We'll, give, we'll be given a heads up. And depending on how the, the time situation is, me, I'll personally go and start finding a reference for that person, even though we haven't gotten that, the actual contract. Mm-hmm. We just sort of like, just get ready. Because once we get the go-ahead, usually there's very little time to get it done. So as much as I can do to sort of hit it off at the pass, as it were, uh, be prepared so when the green light comes down, as much as I can be prepared, that's my goal. And pretty much every week, we're given a sort of an update on sort of what's coming down the pike so that I myself can be prepared for other artists that I'm dealing with so that they're ready. And the last thing I want is sort of like an artist under me that's to say like, hey, I need X number of days to do this and you guys are not giving me that time. So that's that's what I totally want to avoid. I want our artists to be as comfortable as possible so that they can do the work because if they're not comfortable, obviously the art kind of suffers, right? So. Speaking with animation, right, and, and its relationship with, with character, um, this last episode with Sylvia Tilly, I felt pushed animation in an interesting direction, right? We had her 
sitting across the, the captain's table and then later on, you know, twirling a knife or in that same scene. Can you talk to us about that that work and what it takes to kind of just keep one-upping yourselves, essentially, and, and experimenting with the game? Sure. Well, kind of like what Ian said, in the past we've tried to use modular animations, things that are generic enough that we can use for any scenario. Starting with Victory is Life, however, we started changing that a tactic a bit so that what we would call hero characters, people like Garrick or Tilly or Odo or, you know, the big stars, they have more specific animations that are made custom for them. Um, so when we were working with Captain Killy, uh, we wanted this kind of you know, slightly saucy um, kind of character that you would expect from the Terran Empire. Um, so things like that were made uh, were made custom for her character for those cutscenes. What is the process, and how different is it from the animations that we've seen, which is essentially you know perhaps a character just standing and, and speaking, whereas with Tilly, you know, like she's actually lying down. Like, was that a different this time? Was that something that? A, me a mechanism that you had to use differently? Mechanically, they work about the same. Um, because we wanted to make these animations specific for Killy herself, we were using her character for that. So animations uh, with our her human rig were made specifically to her measurements, I guess you could say. Many times we would see her, her hand would be on her hip. We can't usually do that with most characters because we have characters that can be 10 foot tall Gorn or 3 foot tall Yodas. So. Small hands make large arms. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So mechanically, internally, they work the same. But uh, many of those animations were made custom to her rig, to her sizes and specifications. And some of them even more specifically to the cutscenes they were in as right. well. Now, I mean, the, the, the knife twirling was awesome. That was a fantastic little bit of, of character for her. Uh, I don't think I've ever, I don't think we've ever seen somebody, you know, play around with a weapon in, in such a way. Was that challenging at all? Was that something that you guys had to kind of? That, yeah, that was actually rather challenging, just because, um, once again, because of how vastly different our characters can be in terms of size. Animating a weapon in a character's hand can it can be kind of janky at times. Um, so working with Killy, her character, her NPC itself. We were able to create a custom animation that had that knife twirling. Um, essentially, every single frame of that animation was hand-keyed so that that knife twirl would be completely smooth. And there were at least probably two dozen iterations on that wow. specific animation for that. And where do you get uh, the, the direction for these pieces? So when, when you're working on a piece of animation, is this something that is, um, like, you decide from the outset what's going to happen and, and then you go and you do it? Or is it something that is evolving to fit what you're trying to get out of the scene? For instance, what I'm trying to get at, how broad is your remit in terms of your creative control over what you animate uh, for a given uh, part of the story? I think it would fall under kind of both of the things that you just said about having direction beforehand from our art director, Bill Yates, and also Scott Boyd, who helps do our um, storyboards for cutscenes now, um, but also other, other areas such as systems that helped before to determine what a power or something that would look like or how it would react or do um, that is outside of a cutscene. So planning ahead of time really helps the process a lot beforehand, too. Now, the effects for these last two episodes were stunning, really, really just beautiful. 
um, you know, when we were first reviewing the, the missions on, on the podcast, when you beam into the Pavo system and you have that electrical storm in space, you know, saying it out loud, it's like, oh, it's like, it's kind of like JJ verse, but it's not the same electrical storm, right? It's a mycelial, mycelium electrical storm, so to speak. That seems to be a graphic and an effect that we haven't seen before in terms of an entire environment like that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that process in terms of uh, creating that spatial beauty? Okay. Um, well, I just, you know, starts the basic idea of we want to have a lightning storm in space. Make that happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's really, for something like that, that's kind of the centerpiece of that environment. There was a lot of back and forth of uh, how intense should the storm be? Uh, it needs to be crazier because, you know, when you're sending the discovery back, it needs to be crazy. So, yeah. And then also just like... You know, you go you go super crazy, and then you have to dial it down because now you know you have to worry about potatoes and uh, people who have lower end machines and whatnot, and like maybe they can't have all that lightning. Right. right, right. <laughs> so like me. Yeah. <laughs> but so we have to make sure everybody gets something. Joe, I'll ask you this later um, because as a UI artist, um, I don't know if this is in, in, in your mind, but when these when designing things like visual effects. Um, how does accessibility come into mind in the planning process, right? People and gamers who may have certain needs in, its, in, their, in your design, you, you, you're smiling, so I see I, this, this has come up before, I suppose. Well, <laughs> it's funny that you asked this question. So we, we, we just the other day, we're having a conversation yeah. about um, something that's in the game that affects both UI and the, okay. the effects, and we were saying, how can we make this better to where it helps this certain subset of players that have accessibility problems. Right. So we were actually trying to tackle this exact thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not you know anything that we, we have, it's just thoughts that we're working on yeah. and things that we're hoping we can implement. Yeah, the, the main problem right now is all the stuff that we do have, like all the kind of go over here uh, iconography is all just sort of, they're almost all one-offs. Like we needed a thing for this mission and now we're gonna use that over here too because we need that to say the same thing. It led to us having this conversation about why not just make this a, a universal system. So, like, if I'm doing a TFO or a mission or any piece of content and there's a go over there, it's the same thing. I already know what that means. Also making it more efficient so that it doesn't cause problems for people and you can see them from further away. Right, right, right. So also making sure that you know if we're telegraphing something in one place, like in the UI, that the effects match, so yeah. that we're not making you learn sort of two different visual systems. That right, but right. It, even though they're different disciplines, we can still share the same visual language. Right, right. that yeah. really helps. Yeah, because like right now, if you go to the the Voth battle zone, that has a completely different iconography from the Zenkethi battle zone, right? So you kind of have to learn how to play again the first time you go there. Right. So, but if it's the same icons all over the board, you don't have to, you learned it once. Right. And the whole game is the same way, so you're good to go. So we've been talking about ways to try to implement that and uh, get more people on board. And also like color usage. Um, yeah. Because we're trying to be, you know, we're always trying to be considerate of uh, people with color blindness issues. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I think VFX when you, because a lot of times they're used as a language as well, it, it right. can directly affect that. 
Yeah, and there, there's things you can do in UI that you can't do in effects like um, localization. Can you explain, can you, what, what do you mean localization? So if I have, like if I literally had a thing that said go here, mm -hmm. right? Well, in, if you're in Germany, it's gonna say go here in English, no matter what, uh, what country you're in. Right. right, okay. So like for UI elements, like when there's a power call, you know, like, I don't know, quantum thruster or something, like if you're in, you know, Spain or something, it's in Spanish right. instead of English, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, but with the effect system, it's, it's just an image, so it can't right. be localized. Is that like those, um, you know, the little icons that turn up and say offline and things yes. like that? Those are part of the so effects. Those are, yeah, those are effects. Oh. And those don't, those would not get localized. Right. right? Yeah. Interesting. There's a lot of back and forth trickery, like, well, let's do it as a VFX, because then, then we can do this thing. Right. Well, no, let's actually do it as UI and make it look like an effect, because then we can do this thing. So right. there actually ends up being a lot more crossover than I think you would ever right. expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there just ends up being like too many versions of a thing, right? right? Like we have four or five versions of like the down arrows, right? Yeah. We should have one. Um, so, yeah. but yeah, I mean, ideally um, we can get more support and then we'll get this in and everyone can be happy. Good. What are you happiest about with the recent two missions that were released uh, in terms of visual effects? And um, like, what did you go, go away going, wow, that turned out great. And the cutscene at the end was probably the big uh, show when Telly's like, you sons of and disappeared. <laughs> like, <laughs> that came together, like, that just all kind of congealed all in one moment. So right. that was one of the nicer ones to work on. Yeah, we have some uh, some stuff that's still being worked on and will get implemented eventually. Now, with respect to UI, uh, Thomas had mentioned that um, you were fairly new to the team? Yes, yeah. uh, I think about six months. Six months, okay. Uh, well, welcome. And, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, even though I don't work here, welcome aboard. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'll take it. So UI has gone through, you know, I'm sure you're aware, you know, I've been up to date with the history of UI and, uh, yeah. and Star Trek Online. What's your plan for UI? What do you have in store? Like, well, when you looked at Star Trek spot. Online... <laughs> Yeah, it's, and this is one of the, I think, in any genre, any game, you're going to find the same difficulty with UI, is that it's kind of a constant struggle to, especially with older games, keep the UI feeling consistent and true to the spirit of the game, but you also want to be updating it where you can to make sure that it does feel, you know, on par with other contemporary games. Um, and UI is one of those things that can really date a game. Um, Mike and I were laughing about an old screenshot the other day where we were just like, this must have been when the game, before the game even launched, it was that old and it was just baffling. Um, and so you look at that and then what we have now and it's significantly better, but you constantly have to be improving, but you also don't want to lose sight of what feels good in the game. Right. Like, especially with, you know, the history of just Star Trek and L cars. I mean, that's a huge thing. You need to make sure that you are keeping the spirit of that alive, but still doing contemporary practices. Right. And that's that's what I care about a lot, too. So Now, do you cover uh, UI for both the console and for the PC? Uh, yes. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're two very different systems. And how do you... Do you treat them as completely different, or do you try and treat them as sort of uh, different sides of the same coin? Because obviously they're interacting with the same powers and everything like that. Uh, I'd say more the different sides of the same coin, but I think that's closer than a lot of people would think in that I don't think it should feel like a vastly different experience from one to the other. Mm -hmm. Like you should feel like you, if you were to switch, it should feel like you're playing the same game. 
but you should just innately have the right feeling when you're playing. When you're using a controller, it's not going to be the same as using um, a keyboard, and it shouldn't feel jarring. There are some games where you know if it's been a port, it feels jarring to switch from one to the other. So I like, I like to keep things as similar as possible, mm -hmm. but without you noticing what things change. Um, but it is significantly different to make sure you're having the best experience possible. And how do you know that you're doing a good job? Like, how do you, <laughs> like, the, do you, is it seeking feedback from players or around the office? Like, how, how, how can you see that a, that a change that you've made has made things more accessible or more fun or uh, easier to understand? Lots of feedback. Asking lots of people about it. Um, I haven't had to do a whole lot of stuff yet changing as far as how the controls work, mm -hmm. um, but as far as just UX, like user flow, going through a menu system, that still needs to feel good too, even though you don't think about that as being important. It is. Um, so just making people look at it, making people interact with it, going over to QA and harassing them and then harassing them more and then harassing them more on top of that, <laughs> bringing cookies to them and harassing them more. Yeah. Um, you know, that sort of thing is really, really important. We were told that, that you might be the person to ask about this, but uh, what are the chances that we'll see console UI move over to PC as an option? Oh, somebody uh, told you some secrets, I think. Uh, <laughs> yes, so there are, because uh, console was done more recently, we ported that more recently than the original UI, there were some really good things that came out of that, and I think it was a learning experience for everyone that was working on it at the time. Um, but now I'm coming in, I'm saying, well, this works really good here. There's no reason it won't work really well over here. And if we have something that works and it works well, we should learn from that and we should utilize that. There's no reason to, you know, rewrite a whole thing if it works. Um, so we are taking some inspiration, I would say, is the way of looking at it, from console. And we are hoping to make some adjustments to the character creation process. Uh, specifically with how that feels, how it feels to new players and the flow. Make it feel a little bit easier, straightforward, make sure it's an enjoyable experience. Because um, we found that a lot of people were not having a great experience when they created a new character on PC. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that I've actually been wanting to do since before I started working here. Uh, and we're finally starting to work on that. So you were a player before you came on board? Uh, just very, very briefly. I hadn't played the game a whole lot, but I'm an MMO player. Oh, nice. And then as a Star Trek fan, I was a little bit aware of it and then started playing it before, um, before starting to see how I liked it. And I was like, oh, well this, I'm gonna fix this. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of how you start. Yeah, any, any, any position is yeah. kind of how you go into. Um, you know, I think that the question about console UI over to over to PC is probably more the use of the controller. So, I, when asking that question, I think that's the core of it. Will there be a PC version of what how players interact with the console um, with a, with a game controller? Um, I don't think there's any anything planned right now for that, and I know, especially for MMOs, there's a lot of things that they're just done that way, and that's what MMO players expect. They expect it to work that way. Um, that being said, I, I'm always open to giving people lots of options, especially for players that have different types of accessibility issues, like we were talking about before. Some people can't hold a controller, but some people also really have a hard time using a mouse and keyboard. So the more options you give players, the easier it is for everyone, and the better experience you can make sure every player is having. So anytime we're able to do something like that, give people more options on how they enjoy the game, I'm very interested in that. That, that any of that is in the works, it's too soon to say, probably. I've only been here six months, give yeah, me time. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> 
this How time next you? year. How dare you? Yes. <laughs> no, we're next year. Everything's we're on record now. Yeah. We'll be uh, we'll be we'll yeah. be performing a yearly review. You heard it here. Next patch. What? So we have a community question, which is actually really relevant because I've just noticed that you and I both are sporting the Discovery Black Badge today. Um, are we going to get ba- black badges in the game soon? Hmm. Are we? Hmm. It's not on my list currently, but I imagine that it would be. What are you talking about, Italian? Are you watching Discovery right now? He's like, what? It depends. Do you want Klingons with hair or black badges? Black badges? (laughs) (laughs) And credit where credit is due, that question came from somebody called Connell HFT. So, yes, um, thank you for that. We got another one from Colonel Mustard, and they ask. Can Romulan males get the buzz cut, Fohawk, and spiky bang haircuts that Vulcans get? I mean, come on, so, reunification and all that. Just to jump in here for a sec, um, questions like specific costume kind of stuff, like when are we getting this, when are we getting that, it's like asking for specific ships. Like, the, the answer to all of those questions is going to be maybe, and we'll see, and we can't talk about upcoming stuff. So and, I don't, and know, I don't a, know how many of those you guys want to cover. I'm going to because yeah. sometimes the players just need to hear the that we asked it and oh, that yeah. your guys yeah. are going to say maybe. Yeah. So <laughs> just, we just have a canned like the same audio clip of like, I, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. 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 That sounds well, great. Well, yeah. the, the sounds follow, great. Okay, well, the follow-on question, actually, and this is something that I'm sure that we've covered on the show before over the many years, but is worth sort of talking through again, is how, you know, these costume pieces, how are they divided, and, like, why can't you use, geez, I don't know, Gorn costume pieces on an Andorian or something? I don't know. You know what I mean? Why yeah. Why is there that split, and, so and what are the barriers between the, being able to be the original The original way it was set up way back in 2009 when we started the game, <clears throat> there was a concern that um, that's the IP holder didn't want certain... Let's say you know Vulcans running on with with things that are not Vulcan. So we had to sort of like make sure that if you pick a Vulcan, that you would be sort of like in the what you would think a Vulcan would look like sort of mold, right? Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't see Vulcans with like massive beards or or like chops or like long like um, dreads, hippie yeah. hippie hair yeah. or anything. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. So basically, like all Vulcans were basically like. Well cut, you know, uh, short hair and you know, uh, well manicured looking. Uh, yeah. Well, they have beards. Well, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying that's what <laughs> that, that was back then. But now, as you see in the in the show, things are changing. So yes, entire that's it's very possible. And I would say there there is a movement right now that we are going to be changing the way you know all of our races uh, as far as what they can use. It's going to change. So it is a definite maybe, but it's like I can't say what specifically, but it is going to change. And the team has been going back and, you know, like like you mentioned, it's a nine-year-old game and you guys are celebrating nine great years. But you've gone back and you've revamped some cutscenes and some older missions, things like that. What is that process like? Is it a, you know, is it... Is it a matter of, you know, cut, replace, or are you essentially rebuilding these effects... Uh, these animations from scratch for for these older cutscenes. In terms of cutscenes, it's pretty much the latter. It's rebuilding them from the ground up a lot of the times. Um, mentioned earlier, we used so many canned and modular animations back then. There's it, it, it's 
it's just too far gone. <laughs> so, um, but like yes, yeah. emotes strung together. Yeah, um, like emotes strung together with oh, waypoints. Right. It, it just it, it doesn't flow well together. Standing alone and a singular person talking, we could probably do something simple like that and call it a day. But for a lot of cutscenes, especially ones that were more involved, that characters moving around, multiple people talking, you need something more specific to those. So going back and revamping those has been a has been a has been fun. Um, Educational. Yes, that too. <laughs> um, I've learned quite a few things about our editors by time coming here and start um, revamping older cutscenes as well. And I'm, I'm going to continue going on and revamping all the all the cutscenes in the game eventually. So <laughs> that's an affirmative eventually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, that question came from um, Time Skipper over on Reddit, um, and that's interesting to to have. For you to have said that the older missions and older cutscenes were essentially were emotes strung together, because and I think that's the that was the jarring thing, right? About about Mary Wiseman and, and Sylvia Tilly, you know, playing with a knife in her hand, right? It was such a departure from these older cutscenes that we've seen, where it is like you just said, emotes strung together. So it was such a refreshing uh, and beautiful animation that, uh, congrats, congrats to you guys on that. Thank yeah, you. So, I mean, ages of yesterday is when we started doing the custom cutscene stuff right. more. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that really paid off enough that, you know, people saw the, the merits of doing those kinds of things, and we've just been upping the ante every release since then. Yeah, I mean, Star Trek is about storytelling. It's right. about more personal relationships than just simple emotes, so... Cutscenes are really a good bread and butter for the game, yeah. so it's I, th I I personally think that it's very important to go back and revamp these older cutscenes, not just to to polish the game in general, but to allow new players to see what a great great IP and great game that we have here, yeah. even after nine whole years. Yeah, and it's Weston's sort of a superstar around the office. <laughs> yeah. Even in other teams, other game teams, we have people saying, "Oh, I saw that new that new yeah. cutscene. How did he do that? Yeah, because <laughs> because it's so old, but it's amazing that you can get some of the results that he does." Magician yeah. never reveals. <laughs> just like let you know how hard his job is uh, it wasn't until about a, a year ago we couldn't dutch the camera in a cutscene yes so, explain what dutching a camera uh, tilt your head to the side okay. so a dutch uh, angle in cinematography is when you t take the camera and rotate it on its side by about 15 degrees or the, the opening shot from uh, the JJ movies uh, where the camera's just spinning around oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Like, yeah that was impossible before like a year ago yeah we were able to get that in for Tenebris Torquette during yeah. Victory's life, and it made the, the scary moments of that episode so much better. And I've been able to use it ever since. So. <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, that's fantastic. Because, you know, Kenneth, to your point, you know, Star Trek Online before Discovery was really the only source of Star Trek that, you know, people could get their hands on. Um, and now, I wouldn't say that you're competing with Discovery. That's not what I would say at all. I would say that... Complimentary. It's complimentary, and it's another source of great Star Trek content, you know, that people can actually be a part of. So, uh, you know, at this time, I want to open the mics to you all. Is there anything that uh, you came in here saying, mm, I want to talk about this? I, want, I, <laughs> um, I know a lot of people probably listening uh, have some interest in getting into games, um, and I know just as um, an artist, that can be a really difficult and daunting road to go down. So I thought maybe um, just if there's anybody listening and you have interest in any of the disciplines that we're talking about now, um, maybe we could give you a little bit of like, you can do it. Uh, I just want to say like, always keep trying, especially if it's something you're passionate about. We work on a team of everyone that loves Star Trek and loves what they do. 
so if you really love something, like it can happen. I think a lot of people on team wake up every day thinking, oh man, I get to work in the Star Trek game. Like that's, right. I never thought that would happen. Um, but they worked really hard and they got here. So. Well, do you mind sharing a little bit? So since you're the newest member of the team, do you mind sharing a little bit about your background and you know where you came from and how you know? Sure. Uh, so I went to um, art school. I don't think art school is necessary at all. If that's if you want to take a different route, you can definitely get there. You just have to find out what works for you. Um, and then after art school, I knew I wanted to get into games. I've been playing games my whole life, uh, especially MMOs, like I mentioned. And so I just kept doing everything I could. Uh, a lot of times it comes down to being the right person in the right place, but you have to work really hard to make sure you're the right person in that right place when opportunity presents right, itself. Right. And then I just kept taking chances until I finally said, hey, I think I could get on a big name MMO. And I tried, I said, I wanna work on something that has a show that's huge, that everybody knows if I say, I work on this, they know what it is. And now I'm here, and it's yeah. awesome. So is this, your, is this your first job in gaming? No, but it's my first, uh, what I'd consider like this this caliber. Right. Um, I'd worked at a couple places before doing smaller games, some indie games. I think most UI artists get their start doing mobile and casino. It's a really easy way to kind of get into the industry, so I did that. I uh, did not love it. I wanted to work on a game that I actually wanted to go home and play in my free time. Um, so that was the goal, and now I'm here. Great. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> well, Captains, that wraps up this interview. Thank you all so very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us here. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank, right. you. Thank you. On screen. Well, Captains, welcome to On Screen where we dissect the latest episode of Star Trek. This week, Star Trek Discovery, Season 2, Episode 5, Saints of Imperfection. Discovery is in hot pursuit of Spock's shuttle. Upon its capture, however, they find Terran Giorgio where Spock should be. Section 31 is also pursuing the Vulcan science officer. Section 31 director Leland wants Giorgio back, but insists on sending a liaison in her place, Ash Tyler. It isn't all bad news, though. Stamets, who has been searching for Tilly, believes he knows where she is and how to get her back. The Discovery half-jumps into the Mycelial Network to retrieve their plucky ensign. In the Mycelial Network, May explains to Tilly that there is a monster threatening her species. Tilly agrees to help, but before the pair get too far, Discovery peekaboos into the network. Tilly and May meet up with Stamets and Burnham, and the quartet set off. The monster, however, is no monster at all. It is Dr. Hugh Culber. Being inadvertently brought to the network by Stamets, Culber had been harming May's species, the Jossep, in an attempt to protect himself. Some teching and sciencing return everyone, including Dr. Culber, to a bruised Discovery. Discovery's half-jump into the network was saved by a cloaked Section 31 vessel, commanded by Pike's old friend Leland. After the incident, the captains are scolded by Admiral Cornwell. This isn't the last time Discovery will encounter Section 31. The end. So let's uh, first review some touchstones, things that might have been callbacks to previous episodes of Star Trek. Anthony, you're our resident Star Trek master here. What did you pick up on? Oh, wow. Can I get that on a nameplate so I can just <laughs> set that on my desk? Um, and every time every time you argue with me, I'll just show you what you said. Yeah, so, well, one of the... F- 
One of the coolest callbacks, I think, was Pike says the last time you saw Leland, he was wrestling alligators on Cestus 3, which if uh, you're a fan of uh, TOS or even Deep Space Nine, that is where Kirk eventually fights the Gorn on a uh, destroyed Federation colony. So also Tyler's black badge, his Section 31 badge turns out to actually be a communicator. Ah, that's what it was. Yes. And yeah. Sorry, I have to interject because okay, because I watched it a couple times and and every time because he goes, hey, where'd you get that cool tech? And because I'm so used to seeing that communicator type thing forever, mm-hmm. like it literally just occurred to me now. That's why they were all like, wow, that's cool. Because I always forget they have to use the little flippy thing right. for in Discovery. I forget that every time. Sorry, yeah, carry on. I, I, it's interesting because it's you know that tech will eventually go on to be used as you know 24th century communicators. Also, there's a reference to uh, Georgiou references the planet Deneva which is from the TOS episode Operation Annihilate. When when did she talk about Deneva? So she Leland says something and and she says she disobeys Leland's orders and Leland says you know Section 31 still has court martials and she says well if if Section 31 if Command knew about what you did on Deneva with the wrong ambassador you know da 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 she's basically threatening (laughs) that apparently Leland possibly assassinated the wrong ambassador or something. Oh interesting. Also Admiral Cornwell mentions you know Pike should reread Article 14, which mm-hmm. is a reference to the Enterprise episode Divergence, where it's solidified that that the Section 31 reference... Yeah, it's it's referencing Article 14, Section 31, isn't it? Of the Federation Charter, yeah. yes. Yeah. And that it, it is the, that outlines what Section 31 does. Well, I think, because I, I was reading up on this, and I'm not very clear on it, but from what I read, it actually, it doesn't, it doesn't say like, hey, we're going to set up a secret black ops society or whatever, but it does, I think it authorizes is the use of like like special measures you know basically it 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 authorizes going outside of normal starfleet regulations if the need arises is what i understood that to be so so yeah kind of cool all right so with that out of the way let's jump into the episode and our opinions of it let's start with the cons kennedy you want to go first sure i'm gonna kind of gloss over this today and we'll probably come back to it in the next couple of weeks so um (laughs) first of all i want to say that like before before i sat down and watched it i went oh my god it's gonna be a valentine's it's valentine's Valentine's Day, this is going to be the episode where Culber comes back. Because we've known he's been coming. It's, they've been publicizing it pretty heavily that he's going to come back. And I was like, oh my god, it's Valentine's Day. Of course they're going to bring Culber back. I have some real issues with them bringing him back. I have some concerns. I don't... I never liked the treatment that it got in the first season. I felt that they tried to apologize for it like on social media and stuff in a way that was not constructive. And I don't think we ever saw Stamets's journey to healing. I'm going to reserve judgment on his reappearance in season two because we haven't really seen how they're going to treat his return. We've seen him come back, but we haven't actually seen him interacting with anybody. We haven't seen how their relationship is going to change. So I'm kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt. But I got to say, this whole episode felt a lot like retconning and kind of bowing to pressure from outside sources. It felt disingenuous, I thought. I will revisit that when we see a little bit more of how they're going to develop this the, the character. I mean, to, to go off of that, I had a bit of a problem with the Snow White resurrection. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch for me from and True what I'm used kiss. to in, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it a bit a of a stretch cheesy. and for what I'm used to in Star yeah. Trek. And and I had the same issue with Kirk being resurrected by Khan blood in Into Darkness. Mm. I thought that if they were going to bring him back, perhaps it could have been done differently. 
definitely something a little less fantasy and a little more what we're used to in Star Trek, but I won't, you know, I won't dive too too far into that. The the other problem I had with this episode is that the away team really shares no sense of urgency compared to the rest of the crew on <laughs> oh Discovery. Oh my god, it was so maddening. <laughs> As a matter of fact, they spend an additional 90 seconds in the mycelial network. I timed it. Oh god, you didn't time they it, They spend an additional 90... I did, oh I did. They spend an additional 90 seconds in the mycelial network despite the repeated warnings from the bridge and that recurring countdown yeah. from Leland and Pike. First, it was five minutes. First, the Leland can give them five yeah. minutes. Then Georgiou gives them an extra like three minutes. We're right? gonna we're gonna be conservative and say three and a half minutes because that's what Georgiou says. And yet we're stuck in engineering for another ninety minutes seconds to try to uh, ninety <laughs> seconds to try to heighten the drama of resurrecting Colbert. Except all you, you know, want to do is opinion, scream at them. Do we have to talk about this right now? Right now, right, <laughs> can right. We, can so we just you go? Know, my opinion, my opinion is that this really just is a result of of a combination of poor direction directing, poor writing, and then later, poor editing. And that, that's what took me away. That took me out of it for, for Star Trek Discovery. It, it bothers me that this you episode. timed it and they went over the time. I would have thought that would be like priority number one, hey yo, uh, for the editing team, would to be to be like, okay, they said five minutes, they said three minutes, we have to get this wrapped up. I would have thought that would have to, that's that's kind of funny to me that they, that they didn't. It's also funny to me that you actually timed it. <laughs> It's like next level nerding. Because, you know, I, one of the reasons that I timed it is because I don't want to be, I don't want my criticisms of Discovery to be misconstrued as me not being a fan of Trek. I think that I can still be a fan of Star Trek and am no more or no less passionate than the next Trekkie while still maintaining criticism of a television show. And to be quite frank, at this point, this episode would have been the episode of any other series I might have been watching that I would have said, eh, I don't think I'm going to watch next week's episode. So I, I agree that that at when I when I first watched the episode, I there was a disconnect between the urgency and in on the bridge and the urgency on the away mission. In my mind, it was a combination of I mean, Burnham even asks like what is going on on the bridge because she feels like there's a concern up there and Saru literally tells her don't worry about it do what you need to do so they go about what they need to do and then I think it's a combination of shock and sort of being caught in a catch-22 because on one hand they want to they want to save Colber but on the other hand that means that they're going to lose their connection to May and Tilly very much wants to help May in that situation so I so upon my second and third viewing of the episode I felt better about that disconnect Although it does not feel right. I'll, I agree. It does not. Like g cutting back and forth between those actions does not feel right. That being said, I don't necessarily like how they brought Colbert back, but I'm glad they brought him back. And I hope that, um, yeah. I am not glad they brought him back. I will explain further in a future episode of Priority One. So now that we've got our cons out of the way, let's talk about what we did like about the show. Anthony. Like I said, I love that they brought Culber back. I think that what happened in season one was a big mistake. I don't think that this is going to be a completely happy and peaceful resurrection. I am now interested to see how the tension plays out between Stamets and Culber and Tyler now that he's back as well. Kenna. 
what did you enjoy about this episode? So I absolutely love the interaction between Tilly and uh, May in this episode. In fact, the whole sort of first half of the episode, I really liked the characters and how they interacted. I like one of my common complaints about Tilly so far is that she's quite immature. Um, she's kind of given a little bit more agency than I think she deserves at this point in her Starfleet career. But I think all the things that she's experiencing in this episode are going to be really great levers for her growth as a as a person and also as a command trainee. So things like facing fear, negotiation, leadership, the science aspect of it, all of these things are things that are going to serve her very well going into the future. Just out of curiosity, how old is Tilly? Do we know how old she is? Gotta I mean, be we could figure it 23, out. 23, 24. No. Sh- so she's not like 17 and a savant and, and ex, you know, did an accelerated academy experience, she, kind of like what we assume happened to Chekhov in the JJ-verse, right? Right. She was fast-tracked in, at the academy. Into the command, at the academy? So, but I, I, I assume just, she's in her young 20s. Yeah, so, you know, Tilly, I, I compared this episode of Tilly with the episode Context is for Kings. I am not a, I am not quiet about my adoration for Mary Wiseman and her skills as an actress. She is is remarkably talented. I just thought that this episode, they, they took a step back. I think of Context is for Kings where she confronts the Klingon. She's the one that, that takes command and says, who halt, who goes there kind of thing. And then in this episode, as she's walking with the, the phaser rifle, you know, she has these cute little lines. This is, it's a type three, which is stronger than the, the type two and much stronger than the type one. I feel that Tilly is the kind of character that she, that is great under pressure. So, so it just took me out a little bit of that. It took me a little out. I, I'm still not sure. I think they're so excited about Tilly that there's even the writers are exploring where they want to go with her. What about you, Elijah? What was, what was your favorite part of this episode? Gee, can I, I gotta say that the visual effects were amazing in this episode. I mean, it was just that transition between the mycelial network and the, the discovery kind of breaking through that boundary mm-hmm. was was just really well played. Yeah. And the Joss up as well, you know, really cool. That sort of swarm thing that they had going on. Right, And, and at right, the end right, with right. Culber's arm and everything. There was some great effects. I agree. Yes, yes. I thought the episode had a really strong start. You know, I, I thought it everything was really, really good up until Georgiou disembarks. After that, that's all I can say. Well, that wraps up episode 401 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log and Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or find us on Twitter and Instagram at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.PriorityOnePodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11.30 p.m. Eastern on Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Twitter. Keep an eye out on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, be sure to spend time with Admiral Winters and the Priority One Armada. Saturday nights, the Armada takes to our Twitch channel, where they review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as spotlight some of the amazing members in our community. Each week, we team up with you the viewers, to earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there is something for all Star Trek Online players, new and old. Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash priority one. And if you'd like to join the Armada, visit priorityonearmada.com. 
This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash priority one. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at guardfrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. A very special thanks to our friends over at Cryptic Studios for allowing us to conduct several interviews for a very long day at their campus in Los Gatos, California. Thanks to audio editors including Brandon Parker, James Golding, Rand Hurl, Daniel Stevens, Skiffy, and Winters. Thanks to our producer, Jake Morgan, for assisting in the writing of our show and social media endeavors. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper, with support from Jason Smith. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners, because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Su no. Engage. need to write in my diary kenna agreed with me <laughs> this is the day that it happened it won't happen right. again <laughs> was that too bad was that really like no no no, no, no. i'm oh. reading carlos's comment oh, i can't about wait until episode, episode 4000 where elijah's in an electric chair going beep 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 dearie <laughs> 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 oh, me okay I'm going to be a just I'll a enjoy, jar I'll, by I'll that be point, honest with you. I'll enjoy those on-screen discussions when all his only responses are between beep and beep beep. On a nine-inch color-printed model of my Prometheus catfish. Catfish? Catfish? <laughs> catfish? What? Uh, that sounds like, like a euphemism and an insult, like roll into one. Podcast.roddenberry.com the Roddenberry Podcast Network.